Welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affects and is affected by our economy. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato, and this week we are going to talk about how private prisons are dealing with the coronavirus pandemic. Then we have two hot takes. First, Orly Rat joins me out of our Paris office to discuss what it's like for companies to operate in France during the COVID pandemic. And then our head of ESG research, Linda Eileen Lee, joins us to give her take on the investor response to the coronavirus. Thanks as always for joining us. Stay tuned. In prisons and jails, you have an amplifier of infectious diseases such as COVID-19 due to the daily contact inmates have with each other and guards have with inmates that's required to keep a prison running. And there have been reports around the world as to how governments are trying to deal with the spread of COVID in their prison facilities. Some are releasing low-risk inmates, some are locking down their facilities entirely, but it doesn't seem to be working. For example, the Cook County Prison in Chicago is now the U.S.'s largest single source of COVID-19, with over 1,300 people affected, according to correctional data analyzed by the New York Times. Some of you may be curious as to why an ESG podcast is covering prison infections, but we actually have a number of private prison facilities that are owned by publicly traded companies in our coverage. And exploring the amplified ESG risks that are inherent in prison operators, especially during a pandemic like COVID-19, can be a useful tool to understand the long-term ESG risks many companies face that either have workers exposed to COVID or have industries that might be irreparably changed after COVID. And today I'm joined by Andrew Young, who covers the private prison industry. And to give you a scale of the size of the private prison system we cover, Andrew compiled some numbers before our call, which is really tough because the industry doesn't really disclose all that much. So we had to estimate some of these based on facility capacity. And I tell you all that so you know Andrew really worked really hard and how great he is. There are four main private prison groups globally. CoreCivic, GeoGroup, G4S, and Serco. CoreCivic has 74,000 detainees. GeoGroup has 94,000. And G4S and Serco have 5,000. And these facilities are located in the U.S., South Africa, the U.K., and Australia. They all have disclosed policies on how to deal with COVID in the facilities, and they've all had COVID-19 cases at some of their facilities. But first, Andrew, what structurally makes handling a viral outbreak at a public prison different than at a private prison? What, what are some of the structural differences between these two facilities? What, what I immediately thought of when I, when I thought about the prisons and this uh, epidemic was the prison, um, G4S ran a prison in the UK last year, HMP Birmingham. It's run this prison for a number of years. And there, there was, it, it is the most dangerous prison in England. There were a number of riots um, within the prison um, and then eventually the government stepped in and took over the, the administration of this prison. Um, and what the government did is it, it relocated some prisoners to different prisons. Um, it employed more staff than G4S had employed um, so, uh, to control uh, the violence within the prison. And so these are, these are limitations that that the private companies have that the government doesn't have. The, the private company can't say, 
we're going to move these prisoners to a different location. That's not its decision. That's the government's decision. And it can't, it can't say we're going to, or it can hire more staff, but then, of course, it's still got to uh, meet its shareholder um, demands for return uh, on this business. Um, so it, it is slightly structurally more limited than uh, the public sector, I would say. All right. I mean, to sum that up, uh, there's this duality in play where private prisons uh, have the state responsibility over the inmate that they have to deal with uh, in terms of sentencing and the eventual release of that detainee. But the private prison company itself has responsibility for the facility and for what goes on inside the facility that they own, what what the uh, guards do, the kind of food that's given, the kind of health care that's provided. Um, who would be held responsible, Andrew, for the death of an inmate due to COVID in a private prison? Because this this virus, as we all know, spreads extremely quickly. And there's already just been two deaths at a privately run facility in Florida in the U.S. that's run by Blackwater. And it was actually found by the local newspaper there that uh, the facility kept it a secret for a while. Uh, and then a local uh, medical examiner found out that the inmate died of covid and reported it widely. So I'm assuming that this will not be the last time this happens at both a prison and a privately run facility. So I'm wondering uh, who is liable when those things happen? Is it the shareholders that own the company uh, or is it the government that sentenced the inmate? I think who's going to bear the responsibility is, um, well, it's it's obviously the, the party that's managing the facility, but the, it's going to fall more heavily on the, the private prison um, uh, operators. And this is because they are so heavily scrutinized uh, in the media, in the press, um, for this business, um, which is to, to administer a government, to be a steward of government uh, policy. So the legitimacy of the business is, is questioned in the media, and this is going to reinforce that, uh, that debate. Um, so whether they're at fault or not, whether they have worse policies than government facilities or not, I think these companies are going to face substantial scrutiny um, coming out of this pandemic. Right. And by the way, the reporter of that uh, story at Blackwater Rivers uh, Correctional Facility was the Miami Herald. But I think the investor question here is, is there a chance that there could be a huge COVID outbreak at one of these facilities and the company's facility gets nationalized. Um, not to mention in the U.S., these companies ha- house a lot of immigrants of varying ages and genders. So if something turns bad, it could be a situation where the government steps in and says, uh, we're not going to allow this to be uh, run privately anymore due to the unique risk posed by a pandemic and a prison to, to both inmates, but also to correctional officers that are employed by these companies. Um, yes. Um, and, you know, it's it's um, it's a valid question, a question that has been asked um, in in the U.S. especially, um, uh, given uh, the public scrutiny. And actually, you, you know, um, we always point to 2000 and, uh, 2015, 2016, uh, when the government actually decided to to stop awarding contracts to private um, uh, to private prison operators. So, um, and that's because of the um, the uh, the uh, effectiveness and efficiency um, demonstrated by those pub, uh, private facilities compared to the public ones. So this debate has come up before, and this could could then, of course, spur it again. 
um, yes, it, it could be possible. Yeah, that administration being the U.S. administration under Obama. But I think there's this uh, broader ESG question of labor vulnerability during COVID for essential workers. Uh, those that are still going to work and interacting with people during the pandemic and correctional officers are under that essential worker umbrella. And if you look at the New York Department of Corrections data, New York being an epicenter of the COVID pandemic, you see that they report 693 prison staff members have had a confirmed COVID-19 case. 165 incarcerated people have had a COVID confirmed case and 26 parolees as of April 16th. Now, I'm not exactly sure how there are so many more staff infections than prisoner infections as they come into contact with one another all the time. But the amount of staff infections raises a long-term labor question for both the prison industry and industries like grocery store operators and distribution centers. Both industries rely on lower paid employees working in stressful situations what we term as a precarious workforce. And Andrew, you cover a lot of labor relations for us. You've written about these precarious workforces. What do you expect the long-term fallout will be for companies that are still open and have employees on the front line? Coming out of COVID, you know, there might be a sort of a re-evaluation of um, employment contracts, um, such as uh, gig-type contracts, like the private prisons might be scrutinized for how they manage their labor relations. Will companies that leverage to a large degree uh, gig workers, will will they be scrutinized to the extent not just by the public, but also by the, um, by the regulators uh, to uh, enforce some kind of uh, protections for circumstances like uh, COVID-19? If you all remember back in the latter episodes, I had Arne Klug on, and he was talking about this hard-to-pronounce word in German. It was something like Kurzarbeit. A proper English translation might be short-term work. Which is actually the subsidy system for German workers that are on the verge of being laid off. And it got me thinking about how complex this crisis is globally for workers because there are regions that have a lot of worker rights and regions that have considerably less. And one of the main portions of ESG is the social aspect of it. In part, how workers are treated by the companies they work for. So every week, we are going to have one of our analysts on from a different region talking about an exemplary story they found about the region that has to do with labor relations. And today, Orly Rett joins us, uh, who is in our Paris office, because after complaints from the French Union Syndicale Solidaire over the health of Amazon workers, a French court ruled that this week, Amazon could only distribute essential items. And then on Wednesday, Amazon announced that it would suspend its operations in France due to the ruling. So, Orly, what does this show about France and how investors should look at companies that operate in the region during the pandemic? All right, so uh, unions filing complaints in France uh, over lack of staff protection is nothing new. It's not specific to Amazon. It's been happening uh, for quite some time. It's been happening since pretty much the uh, lockdown in France was initiated. Um, we've seen, for instance, uh, companies like uh, Carrefour, uh, Auchan, Toyota, Michelin or Thales, uh, which have faced all faced allegations that their workers were insufficiently protected. Um, recently, uh, since the French president announced that business could 
possibly restart around May 11th. Uh, unions, for instance, at Michelin or Thales have opposed the restart of businesses due to, again, poor perceived health and safety measures, advocating that uh, only essential activities should restart. Um, then you have some companies like Carrefour. They've initiated one of bonuses, Carrefour or Auchan, actually. Auchan and Carrefour have both done it, but initiated uh, some bonuses for the workers um, the f operating in the physical stores. Um, but, you know, again, it's it's come with criticism because uh, Auchan's been criticized because they have actually said the bonus uh, is likely to depend on the number of hours that are actually worked and unions are arguing that you know regardless of the number of hours worked the exposure to the coronavirus remains exactly the same i mean i also think this shows that companies have to really pay attention to safety protocols and markets where labor rights are particularly strong uh, like they have to go above and beyond what they think is standard so what do you think this says about co post-covid brands i think france is definitely a unique market in terms of shifts, there's no guarantee. All I can say, all I can say at this point, or all I can assume at this point, is that the um, government is going to play a very, very heavy role uh, in whatever the world after coronavirus looks like in France. And now, with some spice. We have our glorious head of ESG research at MSCI, Linda Ealing Lee, joining us because there was another big investor letter signed called the Investor Statement on Coronavirus Response. And at the time of recording, it was signed by 275 long-term institutional investors repping USD 7.7 trillion of assets under management. And the letter laid out what investors thought the business community should do during COVID. And they set five principles. One, provide paid leave. Two, prioritize health and safety. Three, maintain employment. Four, maintain supplier and customer relationships. And five, of course, maintain financial prudence, which sounded a lot like the stakeholder letter penned by the Business Roundtable on the World Economic Forum that said businesses should care about all stakeholders and not just shareholders. So, Linda, I wanted to get your take on this investor letter. I mean, there were two things that really stood out to me um, when I first read all five principles. The, the first is that Honestly, these principles are aimed primarily at U.S. companies, right? So the, the first um, couple of them, paid sick leave, maintaining employment, talking about contingent workforces, these are issues that, um, that you've talked about uh, on previous podcasts with various analysts as measures that um, are required because of the lack of labor protections and the, the social safety net um, um, that is um, prevalent here in the U.S. versus um, in other countries like for European companies. So And also even... Even principle five, um, you know, when we're talking about executive compensation um, and um, and buybacks, those are also much more skewed towards U.S. companies. So I think that the five principles are really um, one very much aimed at U.S. companies, which I found interesting. Um, and then the second thing is exactly this tension you're talking about, right? 
because it's going to be very interesting to see how investors themselves are going to respond to this. Um, for the, the really the, the long-term investors that are very focused on the resilience of our total system holistically, um, they may actually, I think, find it difficult in the next couple of months to reconcile those first four principles with that very last one about financial prudence. Um, I, I think that you know we're just getting into earnings season now. It's clear that there's some very, very extensive financial damage being done to the some companies. Um, and so for some of them, it's going to be a matter of survival for them um, to cut expenses um, because of the complete collapse in revenues. They have upcoming debt obligations. Um, so this expectation that they're putting in for, for in the statement for, for principle five of being financially prudent, um, it's going to mean some operational pain because without some pain, um, there is not possibly going to be a long term at all for some of these companies. They may actually just simply go under. Well, what's, what also struck me was that one through four sounded like good, solid ESG principles. You know, take care of your employees and your community and your suppliers. And our research says that if you do these types of things, you will likely be a more successful company, uh, a more successful member of society too, but also a more successful company. But then number five comes in as though it's a separate thought. And do, do these things and also make sure you don't lose money. Which to add that as an aside after the first four principles felt a bit off to me. I think that's right. I mean, I think that this idea that if you are generous, if you will, to your employees, um, that that you're being financially not prudent um, is actually a little bit of this um, really like if you're running your business in a very robust way. Uh, you are being financially prudent in that you're investing in the kinds of human capital that will pay off for you in the long term, right? So they really should be going hand in hand. Um, but I think that maybe the way the principles are laid out where uh, you're treating your staff in a certain way and have certain types of measures like paid leave and so forth and is separate from financial prudence, I think, is, is maybe demarcating something that really shouldn't, shouldn't be separate. And that's it for the week. I wanted to thank Andrew and Orly and Linda for joining me to discuss this week's news with an ESG twist. I hope everybody is staying safe out there and I hope it's not too difficult right now with the COVID pandemic. Thanks as always for listening. I'll talk to you next week. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or produ product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.